0: Section 8 of Chapter 18 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 18, Section 8. But the government did not trust solely to Bretelbane's diplomatic skill. The authorities at Edinburgh put forth a proclamation exhorting the clans to submit to King William and Queen Mary, and offering pardon to every rebel who, on or before the 31st of December, 1691, should swear to live peaceably under the government of their majesties. It was announced that those who should hold out after that day would be treated as enemies and traitors. Warlike preparations were made, which showed that the threat was meant in earnest. The highlanders were alarmed and though the pecuniary terms had not been satisfactorily settled thought it prudent to give the pledge which was demanded of them no chief indeed was willing to set the example of submission glengarry blustered and pretended to fortify his house i will not said lochiel break the ice that is a point of honor with me but my taxmen and people may use their freedom his taxmen and people understood him and repaired by hundreds to the sheriff to take the oaths the macdonalds of Sleat. Clan Reynalds, Keppock, and even Glengarry imitated the Camerons, and the chiefs, after trying to outsay each other as long as they durst, imitated their vassals the thirty first of December arrived, and still the Macdonalds of Glencoe had not come in. The punctilious pride of Macian was doubtless gratified by the thought that he had continued to defy the government after the boastful Glengarry, the ferocious Keppock, the magnanimous Lochiel had yielded, but he bought his gratification dear. At length, on the thirty-first of December, he repaired to Fort William, accompanied by his principal vassals, and offered to take the oaths. To his dismay he found that there was in the fort no person competent to administer them. Colonel Hill, the governor, was not a magistrate, nor was there any magistrate nearer than Inverary. MacEhan, now fully sensible of the folly of which he had been guilty in postponing to the very last moment an act on which his life and his estate depended, set off for Inverary in great distress he carried with him a letter from hill to the sheriff of argleshire sir colin campbell of ardkinglass a respectable gentleman who in the late reign had suffered severely for his whig principles in this letter the colonel expressed a good-natured hope that even out of season a lost sheep and so fine a lost sheep would be gladly received macian made all the haste in his power and did not stop even at his own house though it lay nigh to the road but at that time a journey through argleshire in the depth of winter was necessarily slow The old man's progress up steep mountains and along boggy valleys was obstructed by snowstorms, and it was not till the 6th of January that he presented himself before the sheriff at Inverary. The sheriff hesitated. His power, he said, was limited by the terms of the proclamation, and he did not see how he could swear a rebel who had not submitted within the prescribed time. Macian begged earnestly and with tears that he might be sworn. His people, he said, would follow his example if any of them proved refractory he would himself send the recusant to prison or ship him off for islanders his entreaties and hill's letter overcame sir colin's scruples the oath was administered and a certificate was transmitted to the council at edinburgh setting forth the special circumstances which had induced the sheriff to do what he knew not to be strictly regular the news that macian had not submitted within the prescribed time was received with cruel joy by three powerful scotchmen who were then at the english court Rattlebane had gone up to London at Christmas in order to give an account of his stewardship. There he met his kinsman Argyle. Argyle was, in personal qualities, one of the most insignificant of the long line of nobles who have borne that great name. He was the descendant of eminent men, and the parent of eminent men he was the grandson of one of the ablest of scottish politicians the son of one of the bravest and most true-hearted of scottish patriots the father of one mac Callen moore renowned as a warrior and as an orator as the model of every courtly grace and as the judicious patron of arts and letters and of another mac Callen moore distinguished by talents for business and command and by skill in the exact sciences both of such an ancestry and of such a progeny Argyll was unworthy He had even been guilty of the crime, common enough among Scottish politicians, but in him singularly disgraceful, of tampering with the agents of James while professing loyalty to William. Still Argyle had the importance inseparable from high rank, vast domains, extensive feudal rights, and almost boundless patriarchal authority. To him, as to his cousin Breddlebane, the intelligence that the tribe of Glencoe was out of the protection of the law was most gratifying, and the master of Stair more than sympathized with them both. The feeling of Argyll and Bretelbane is perfectly intelligible. They were the heads of a great clan, and they had an opportunity of destroying a neighbouring clan with which they were at deadly feud. Bretelbane had received peculiar provocation. His estate had been repeatedly devastated, and he had just been thwarted in a negotiation of high moment. Unhappily there was scarcely any excess of ferocity for which a precedent could not be found in Celtic tradition among all warlike barbarians revenge is esteemed the most sacred of duties and the most exquisite of pleasures and so it had long been esteemed among the highlanders the history of the clans abounds with frightful tales some perhaps fabulous or exaggerated some certainly true of vindictive massacres and assassinations the macdonalds of glengarry for example having been affronted by the people of culloden surrounded culloden church on a sunday shut the doors and burned the whole congregation alive While the flames were raging, the hereditary musician of the murderers mocked the shrieks of the perishing crowd with the notes of his bagpipe. A band of MacGregors, having cut off the head of an enemy, laid it, the mouth filled with bread and cheese, on his sister's table, and had the satisfaction of seeing her go mad with horror at the sight. They then carried the ghastly trophy in triumph to their chief. The whole clan met under the roof of an ancient church. Every one in turn laid his hand on the dead man's scalp, and vowed to defend the slayers. The inhabitants of Egg seized some McLoyds, bound them hand and foot, and turned them adrift in a boat to be swallowed up by the waves or to perish of hunger. The Macloids retaliated by driving the population of Egg into a cavern, lighting a fire at the entrance, and suffocating the whole race, men, women, and children. It is much less strange that the two great earls of the House of Campbell, animated by the passions of highland chieftains, should have planned a highland revenge, than that they should have found an accomplice, and something more than an accomplice, in the Master of Stair. The Master of Stair was one of the first men of his time, a jurist, a statesman, a fine scholar, an eloquent orator. His polished manners and lively conversation were the delight of aristocratical societies, and none who met him in such societies would have thought it possible that he could bear the chief part in any atrocious crime. His political principles were lax, yet not more lax than those of most Scotch politicians of that age. Cruelty had never been imputed to him. Those who most disliked him did him the justice to own that, where his schemes of policy were not concerned, he was a very good-natured man. There is not the slightest reason to believe that he gained a single pound Scots by the act which has covered his name with infamy. He had no personal reason to wish the Glencoe men ill. There had been no feud between them and his family. His property lay in a district where their tartan was never seen. Yet he hated them with a hatred as fierce and implacable as if they had laid waste to his field, burnt his mansion, murdered his child in the cradle to what cause are we to ascribe so strange an antipathy this question perplexed the master's contemporaries and any answer which may now be offered ought to be offered with diffidence the most probable conjecture is that he was actuated by an inordinate an unscrupulous a remorseless zeal for what seemed to him to be the interest of the state this explanation may startle those who have not considered how large a proportion of the blackest crimes recorded in history is to be ascribed to ill-regulated public spirit we daily see men do for their party for their sect for their country for their favourite schemes of political and social reform what they would not do to enrich or to avenge themselves at a temptation directly addressed to our private cupidity or to our private animosity whatever virtue we have takes the alarm but virtue itself may contribute to the fall of him who imagines that it is in his power by violating some general rule of morality to confer an important benefit on a church on a commonwealth on mankind he silences the remonstrances of conscience and hardens his heart against the most touching spectacles of misery by repeating to himself that his intentions are pure that his objects are noble that he is doing a little evil for the sake of a great good By degrees he comes altogether to forget the turpitude of the means and the excellence of the end, and at length perpetrates without one internal twinge acts which would shock a buccaneer. There is no reason to believe that Dominic would, for the best archbishopric in Christendom, have incited ferocious marauders to plunder and slaughter a peaceful and industrious population, that Everard Digby would for a dukedom have blown a large assembly of people into the air, or that Robespierre would have murdered for hire one of the thousands whom he murdered from philanthropy. The master of Stair seems to have proposed to himself a truly great and good end, the pacification and civilization of the Highlands. He was, by the acknowledgment of those who most hated him, a man of large views. He justly thought it monstrous that a third part of Scotland should be in a state scarcely less savage than New Guinea, that letters of fire and sword should, through a third part of Scotland, be, century after century, a species of legal process, and that no attempt should be made to apply a radical remedy to such evils. The independence affected by a crowd of petty sovereigns, the contumacious resistance which they were in the habit of offering to the authority of the crown and of the court of session, their wars, their robberies, their fire-raisings, their practice of exacting blackmail from people more peaceable and more useful than themselves, naturally excited the disgust and indignation of an enlightened and politic gownsman, who was, both by the constitution of his mind and by the habits of his profession, a lover of law and order. His object was no less than a complete dissolution and reconstruction of society in the highlands. Such a dissolution and reconstruction as, two generations later, followed the Battle of Culloden. In his view the clans, as they existed, were the plagues of the kingdom, and of all the clans the worst was that which inhabited Glencoe. He had, it is said, been particularly struck by a frightful instance of the lawlessness and ferocity of those marauders. One of them, who had been concerned in some act of violence or rapine, had given information against his companions. He had been bound to a tree and murdered. The old chief had given the first stab, and scores of dirks had then been plunged into the wretch's body. By the mountaineers, such an act was probably regarded as a legitimate exercise of patriarchal jurisdiction. To the master of Stair, it seemed that people among whom such things were done and were approved ought to be treated like a pack of wolves, snared by any device, and slaughtered without mercy. He was well read in history, and doubtless knew how great rulers had, in his own and other countries, dealt with such banditti. He doubtless knew with what energy and what severity James V had put down the moss-troopers of the border, how the chief of Henderlin had been hung over the gate of the castle in which he had prepared a banquet for the king, how John Armstrong and his thirty-six horsemen, when they came forth to welcome their sovereign, had scarcely been allowed time to say a single prayer before they were all tied up and turned off nor probably was the secretary ignorant of the means by which sixtus v had cleared the ecclesiastical state of outlaws the eulogists of that great pontiff tell us that there was one formidable gang which could not be dislodged from a stronghold among the apennines beasts of burden were therefore loaded with poisoned food and wine and sent by a road which ran close to the fastness The robbers sallied forth, seized the prey, feasted, and died, and the pious old Pope exulted greatly when he heard that the corpses of thirty ruffians, who had been the terror of many peaceful villages, had been found lying among the mules and packages. The plans of the master of Stair were conceived in the spirit of James and of Sixtus, and the rebellion of the mountaineers furnished what seemed to be an excellent opportunity for carrying those plans into effect. Mere rebellion, indeed, he could have easily pardoned. On Jacobites, as Jacobites, he never showed any inclination to bear hard. He hated the Highlanders, not as enemies of this or that dynasty, but as enemies of law, of industry, and of trade. In his private correspondence he applied to them the short and terrible form of words in which the implacable Roman pronounced the doom of Carthage. His project was no less than this, that the whole hill country from sea to sea and the neighboring islands should be wasted with fire and sword, that the Camerons, the Macleans, and all the branches of the race of MacDonald should be rooted out. He therefore looked with no friendly eye on schemes of reconciliation, and, while others were hoping that a little money would set everything right, hinted very intelligibly his opinion that whatever money was to be laid out on the clans would be best laid out in the form of bullets and bayonets. To the last moment he continued to flatter himself that the rebels would be obstinate, and would thus furnish him with the plea for accomplishing that great social revolution on which his heart was set. The letter is still extant, in which he directed the commander of the forces in Scotland how to act if the Jacobite chiefs should come in before the end of December. There is something strangely terrible in the calmness and conciseness with which the instructions are given. Your troops will destroy entirely the country of Lochaber, Lochiel's lands, Capix, Glengarry's, and Glencoe's. Your power shall be large enough. I hope the soldiers will not trouble the government with prisoners. This dispatch had scarcely been sent off when news arrived in London that the rebel chiefs, after holding out long, had at last appeared before the sheriffs and taken the oaths. Lockheel, the most eminent man among them, had not only declared that he would live and die a true subject to King William, but had announced his intention of visiting England, in the hope of being permitted to kiss His Majesty's hand. In London it was announced exultingly that every clan, without exception, had submitted in time, and the announcement was generally thought most satisfactory. But the master of Stair was bitterly disappointed. The Highlanders were then to continue to be what they had been, the shame and curse of Scotland a golden opportunity of subjecting them to the law had been suffered to escape and might never return if only the macdonalds would have stood out nay if an example could but have been made of the two worst macdonalds keppock and glencoe it would have been something but it seemed that even keppock and glencoe marauders who in any well-governed country would have been hanged thirty years before were safe while the master was brooding over thoughts like these argyle brought him some comfort the report that MacEan had taken the oaths within the prescribed time was erroneous. The secretary was consoled. One clan, then, was at the mercy of the government, and that clan the most lawless of all. One great act of justice, nay, of charity, might be performed. One terrible and memorable example might be given. Yet there was a difficulty. Macian had taken the oaths. He had taken them, indeed, too late to be entitled to plead the letter of the royal promise but the fact that he had taken them was one which evidently ought not to have been concealed from those who were to decide his fate by a dark intrigue of which the history is but imperfectly known but which was in all probability directed by the master of stair the evidence of macian's tardy submission was suppressed the certificate which the Sheriff of Argyllshire had transmitted to the Council at Edinburgh was never laid before the Board, but was privately submitted to some persons high in office, and particularly to Lord President Stair, the father of the secretary. These persons pronounced the certificate irregular, and indeed absolutely null, and it was cancelled. End of section eight. Recording by Jen